This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm Panel Beater and I'm joined in the studio with Capri. Good morning, Capri. Good morning, PB. Hey, I've, just, I've decided to shorten it. Yeah, yeah why not? PB sounds all right. <laughs> hey, um, the cat's away. Yes, I know. And playing, no doubt. Do little. He's yes. been uh, gratuitous with his social media as he's gallivanting around sunny yes. climbs. As expected. Yeah. Yes, he's b- bailed up in some horrible place, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Miserable. Bless him. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. Good. Looking forward to this morning. Yeah, should be good. Yeah, so coming up this morning, we've got uh, a couple of guests and we've got tied together a little bit of a theme around um, identity building and, and self-image and body image in particular. Hmm. Um, we'll have um, Jess Sanders in talking about a book that she's been working on d- directed to young girls um, and, uh, and how they can think about themselves and their body. And we've also got um, Jack Haynes in for uh, a discussion uh, with us all about his work, his research on the body image of um, young um, elite athletes, in particular, recently around um, AFL uh, players. Mm. So that should be that should be bloody good. Mm, okay. um, but before we get to that, we're going to have a little bit of a catch up and talk a little bit of news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got Hey, Capri. Yes. You've brought in a little bit of an interesting news item by the looks of it. Yeah, well, I just thought I'd... uh, It's always good to have some good news stories, I think, and um, I'm going to be focusing on the latest statistics on alcohol consumption uh, in Australia, and we are doing much better as far as um, the amount of alcohol we're drinking. Obviously, alcohol, I think it's fair to say, is uh, the social lubricant Mm. uh, and culturally accepted norm that we go out and socialise and have a drink, which is all good and well, but we also accept that alcohol... Uh, is responsible or contributes to a lot of negative health issues, domestic violence, mental health problems, you know, lots of uh, negative stuff. And obviously um, we have to take that into account. And the latest statistics certainly show that we're, as a population, doing better in the sense that um, uh, it's an all-time low, 55-year all-time low. Uh, We're drinking much less alcohol. There's a nice little statistic here that in 1974 the average beer drinker was drinking 500 stubbies (laughs) a year, whereas now they're down to 227. So that's a a nice little uh, number. But um, there's no... And and the reasons are variable. Uh, I guess I want the panel to guess who's responsible for these numbers. Who, who, Who do you think is doing the best job at reducing or drinking less? Which group? Oh, just before we go to the panel, um, or we should introduce them oh, first. Yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Look, you guys, we're going to keep you a secret for a little while, but no, come on, join us in. Um, Jess, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How are you? Hi, good. good. Welcome How are you? to welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> and Jack, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here too. Yeah, so uh, Capri's just put us a question. Say that question again, Capri. Yeah, just who, which group uh, do you think uh, age bracket is um, most responsible for the declining number in alcohol consumption? I feel like it might be millennials. I heard some statistics around this that 
Um, yeah, I heard some statistics that millennials were drinking a lot less, or like young people, like even like um, around eighteen to early twenties. Spot on, yeah. absolutely. So the age between eighteen and twenty-five seem to be responsible. Well, not t- totally responsible, but for largely responsible for this statistic. I I notice it a lot from teaching that crew, that age group. And um, so if we organise something resembling a social event, you know, at round O week or um, some midterm event after school, after school, <laughs> after class, um, uh, drink, it, no, not yep. drinking. And um, at, a, at a particular local establishment that I go to every so often, there, there aren't very many 18 to 22-year-olds, 18 to 25-year-olds. And and the reasons are a number, and I think that that message that, you know, the brain development at 24, it's better to sort of um, postpone the age that you start drinking, obviously has got out there. So there's fewer, um, uh, more millennials um, drinking at a later age, so introducing alcohol at a later age, and more of those actually remain um, teetotalers because obviously they see that there's no additional benefit to their social life or, you know, um, so they remain teetotalers. Um, not only that, uh, they're drinking less. If they are drinkers, they're drinking less. Mm. Um, and that's for a whole lot of reasons, obviously. The expense, uh, you know, random breath testing being so prominent now. So clearly that's that's impressive. Um, for the other groups, uh, even there are more teetotalers in general um, and obviously the health message is getting out there that... Um, um, you know, alcohol, yes, it's good in small, smaller quantities, but, you know, we need to be careful. We also, uh, the other uh, side of this is that that's great news. We're doing a great job. Uh, the numbers are going down, but we don't want to be too complacent because the alcohol industry uh, are well aware of these numbers as well and they're starting to pull out um, new tactics and <laughs> tricks to uh, try and get the uh, that trajectory going in the other direction again. So um, I read this article about this health halo that the uh, uh, alcohol industry are starting to to get into, whereby they're starting to promote alcohol products as um, with this sort of healthy benefit, you know, because they're pure, natural, 99.9% <laughs> sugarless. Yeah. Um, they've got botanicals. And so they're trying to suggest that some of these alcohol products are better for you and therefore, you know, not to worry about the risk, whereas... It's practically is, mineral water. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the risk <laughs> is exactly the same. Uh, so I think um, we just don't want to be too complacent, even those these numbers obviously demonstrating that um, as a population we're certainly going in the right direction. How much do you reckon uh, cost has got to do with it? Well, I think for the millennial group, I mean, you know, the avocado, smashed (laughs) avocado um, population, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I guess we can ask the people in that that, um, demographic. I just make that age go from 25. Um, Yeah, I I think cost definitely has something to do with it. I also think, like, pressure to, like do well in your career, um, pressure mm. to succeed, to do well academically, I think really influences the amount people are drinking because they're actually, I think, being less social, social as well. Yeah. Mm. What I'd be interested in, you know, with my researcher kind of mindset is whether, say, when it's coming to bars and pubs, for example, whether people are going to them less or whether they're still going to them um, and going there for the same length of time, but spending differently. So, with the, especially in Melbourne with microbrews, 
they're obviously a little bit more expensive, mm. but they're also not beers that you would associate with getting tanked on. You know, like you know, at uni it was always the cheapest beer that you could get in a slab. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now you're not buying a slab of you know a microbrew around Melbourne, are you? But you might still be going to the pub and sipping on one or two um, for over for a longer period of time. And are they much more expensive? Are they? Well, they tend to be. They tend to be. I guess a. I think you're probably a bit more of. A, I reckon a, a microbrew um, or a small brewery on tap maybe is about twelve dollars a pint, whereas say I think a lot of the pubs that are doing Carlton Brewery, Carlton United breweries, around about nine dollars. Right. Yeah, there are places that you can get like sometimes six, eight dollar pints on like a happy hour. Yeah, right. For, like your draft and stuff, but yeah, yeah, the average. Um, I reckon boutique beer is like five fifty a pot, six dollars. Yeah, right. So yeah. cost is going to be something there. Well, if that's what, whatever the reasons are, mm. I think we're certainly going in the right direction. As I said, the other issue is that you know the alcohol industry is very poorly self-regulated, yeah. and that you know there's no um, currently no requirements to have any good evidence-based health warnings on any uh, alcohol products or packaging. And I think that's probably the next area. You know, you think about the cigarette packaging, what a difference that's made. I think at the very least having the, the uh, NH and MRC guidelines on what we consider to be, you know, not healthy drinking. I think we have to be careful about how we term that, but drinking that's considered to be less risky, at least having that on alcohol packaging, I think, is a, is a good start. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and I think the uh, culture of smoking has also changed where uh, some of the policies in place, such as you can't smoke in uh, public venues mm. or you can't smoke in a car, uh, the whole discourse around smoking uh, has changed so that it's a bit more stigmatized and no longer viewed as socially desirable. I mean, when you're at a when you're at a pub and you can't smoke inside and you've got to go to a smoker's room, um, yeah. it's almost viewed as antisocial. And so it's been that uh, push um, and a change in culture where uh, smoking isn't viewed the same, and yeah. maybe it's no longer taken up by as many people, mm. and that's had an impact. Yeah, yeah. I think just one last uh, thing that occurred to me in a couple of weeks ago, Capri, we had people talking um, about um, legalisation of, mm. of drugs. Having said that I don't think our 18 to 25-year-olds are drinking as much, just on anecdotal evidence from my I think they're still doing the disco biscuits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that so yeah the other thing, that, the question is whether because um, drugs are cheaper yeah. uh, than alcohol in some circles, apparently... Uh, that's that's that is the other question. Is it are, are the millennials just ha- taking more drugs than they're drinking to get the same hit? So, yeah. I mean, I don't don't, I don't have any evidence or research to um, ex- expand on that. No, I don't have it to hand either. Um, but it does occur to me that there probably are some knock on health things like you know alcohol consumption and the sorts of food choices you make, um, and um, alcohol consumption and sort of risks you take. You mm. know, like driving and and those sorts of things. Yeah, no, yeah. Have something to do with it. Really, really interesting. Um, I've got a couple of quick pieces. Yes. Um, something caught my eye in um, The Guardian during the week about the first ever trials on the effects of microdosing LSD. <laughs> um, and um, it, I think it's, it's really fascinating. Um, I learned a few things just reading this article and then that sent me down a rabbit hole online. But mm. first thing that struck out was that there's been... Plenty of research on the use of LSD and drugs in general, but not on microdosing. And this has come to the fore um, because of claims that 
those in the Silicon Valley set um, are talking about how it helps them with their um, performance, mm. with their focus, mm. uh, mental clarity and so on. And so the claim is that if they're taking a little bit of a dose once a week, some of them are doing it every day, um, that they're better at what they do. Mm. And I reckon this opens a can of worms. What's your immediate reaction, guys? I guess from my perspective, um, how would we measure performance and um, how would you control for everything that goes on in a person's life to know whether it's the microdosing of the LSD that is having an impact? Mm. Um, and for every um, article published that is making one claim, there seems to be within uh, peer-reviewed journals contrasting evidence. So... Um, yeah, it's hard to really know what is going on and, and what's the impact. Yeah, I, well, and so coming to the researcher aspect of it, the, the placebo is going to play a role here. And they, they point out in this particular article how um, if you're already taking, um, if you're already microdosing, you may have got a, a particular kind of relationship to drugs in the first instance. Yes. And so you might have a disposition. That that expectancy an bias. An expectancy yeah. bias, yes. 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 Um, so we'll find out a little bit more about that. So it'll be worth keeping on. This this piece of research just started on the 3rd of September, so just this week, just gone by. Yeah, well, I actually found something that's uh, the Macquarie Unit in Sydney's already put out. Did you oh, read oh, that no, article? No. So it's a, a systematic study of microdosing. And, uh, you know, the usual last sentence is we need more research. However, they actually made some interesting... They tried to allow for this expectancy bias. Now, this wasn't a, a proper study. This was just basically interviewing people who are already microdosing. But, uh, and uh, they made a couple of interesting... Um, uh, they, they found some interesting points in that the, the effects that they thought were going to be, um, they were going to expose like the increased creativity, the mindfulness, the performance uh, enhancement, if mm. you like, um, didn't actually um, um, come out in the study. Um, in fact, it was other things like reducing depressive symptoms, um, increasing your concentration and also increasing neuroticism. Yeah. So... Um, it, and basically they're saying that um, uh, that expectancy bias is really difficult to exclude because a lot of people, obviously, they're already proponents of it. They feel they're going to get a really good, you know, outcome and therefore how do you... I'm not sure. I'm not a researcher. So it just sounds like it's just um, going to be really murky waters to try and decipher unless you actually can do a proper yeah, study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not a medical researcher, so I'm thinking it's sort of from a cultural, social, even political background and wondering, let's just hypothesise. What if conclusions are reached that it does help with focus? Can you imagine the potential workplace consequences for that? What are yeah. your reactions there? Oh, I think that I think there'd be a lot of disparity because I think everyone responds to drugs differently. So I think to, to say that you'll have one outcome and everyone will have increased focus, there could be a lot of backlash in that. But, but, but play with me for a little bit on this. What If something is performance enhancing at work, what's the distinguish with the way that we treat performance enhancing in, say, in sport? So if um, you... Uh, Identify if you if if we identify something that enhances our physical performance. What are the distinctions we want to make about something that um, distinguishes our mental capacity? 
Yeah, again, I, I mean, I feel very uncomfortable about all of that. Obviously, I'm seeing it mm. from a medical perspective. Like, I had, I, as I was reading this stuff, I was thinking about some parallels with the whole marijuana debate. You know, you kind of need to have, uh, from my perspective, you know, what is the need? What are we trying to... Um, help people with and here it's just a matter of making you to feel like you're a bit of a superhuman at work I can't I have an issue with that mm. um, uh, so I I agree I just think how do you accept that that's a reasonable thing to be enhancing when we're we say on on in other um, areas like sport that that's not acceptable you're not going to have a, a level playing field unless everyone goes on these um, micro doses well, of psychedelics at work, then... We're, we're obviously a long way from conclusions here, so we're jumping the gun on a little things. But I just... My mind goes to things like, um, you know, if, if, if conclusive, con- conclusive conclusions... If conclusions are made that it does enhance, then clearly in the employment marketplace there's going to be... S- competitive yes. uh, advantage seeking uh, and that worries me a great yeah, deal well, let alone pressures from HR and so on. And yep. that brings up a lot of concerns around why is it in the first place that people are needing to improve their performance um, in yeah. relation to others <laughs> um, so if we um, unpack that a bit deeper, the culture of the workplace, uh, the individualism involved, uh, the need to compete against others and put yourself ahead and that leads to only certain uh, groups of people having access to this and just furthers um, maybe yeah. that gap in performance between people trying to get into the industry or people who are just starting yeah. out or yeah. don't have access to that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, needing more studies, the, the fact that this one in um, Sydney did sort of highlight the fact that there may be some benefits to people who who are not functioning on some level, like you know, mm. um, people who've got depression. Um, so, so obviously, we need some more studies because these drugs, these drugs, these um, products have been around for a long, yeah. long time, and maybe they do have some benefit. Maybe. A bit like the marijuana story, but clearly, we're a long way off um, using them on a on a big scale. Yeah. Just to wrap up on that, and it also points to this medicalisation of everything. I mean, we know without any further study really being done that exercise and diet helps with focus and performance mm. and you know and mood and and everything so why don't we just emphasize diet and exercise <laughs> rather than having to market those you know or, or you know micro trip every yes, morning agreed um just uh quickly one uh, in a, a piece of good news certainly from my perspective um one of my gripes around academia and institutional research and so on is um closed access to the reports and the research articles, right? So unless you're enrolled in a university or doing research or um, with, a, with an organisation that needs the, needs the detail, um, you general public don't have access to the, um, the output. And this is uh, interesting on a number of levels, not least of which that often this research is taxpayer funded. So if the ta- if the research is taxpayer funded, why aren't people getting open access to it? And it's very much a closed shop, mm. um, academic research. And if you want to take a subscription to a journal, like a personal subscription, it's really, really, really expensive and mm. prohibitive. So this little um, news item came out during the week, radical plan to end paywalls, top European research funders announce what they're calling Plan S to make all scientific works free to read. And Plan S um, revolves around this collection of um, um, funding agencies who, as a condition of their funding of researchers, it will be that those researchers need to publish in open access journals. 
given I'm not in not a researcher and have never published anything what are the downsides to that though what what do you does that erode the quality of research or i don't know it, I'm it, just being yeah advocate. no no and I, I think it's a fair question i think so long as the peer review mechanism is protected um then it's as far as i'm concerned it's all upside okay i think um also another point is that it's a bit of a shame as well that we need open access journals in order for um, the public to access this knowledge in the first place. I think if there was less pressure on academics in the first place, if they weren't um, (laughs) overworked, if they didn't have poor working conditions, then they had time to actually do things like this and engage with the public and and have some knowledge translation into the public realm, uh, then that would be even better. So... um, yeah, it's it's good that there's open access to uh, new knowledge, but it would be even better if uh, yeah. they were in the public realm and informing the public. I think so too. And I mean, you know, so it, it also can potentially direct people to the source of, um, you know, these, these con- research conclusions rather than reading a generic media article that may take it completely out of context and misdirect and, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. That's the optimist in me. <laughs> Listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radio Therapy on Triple R. You're with Panel Beta with Capri and our guests Jess and Jack. Uh, hey guys, welcome back. Um, Jess and Jack, great to have you with us, and um, we're about to just uh, embark on a, a really interesting discussion. I think. Um, to get us there, Jess, would you kick us off? Just tell us a little bit about where your focus is and um, uh, what brought you to start writing this book. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess I've always been really interested in uh, body image and the way that it, um, the way that it prevents girls from doing things that they want to do, from speaking up for themselves. Um, and I've, surra- I've been surrounded a lot of my life by really, well, I've been really exposed to the ways in which it limits girls and women so I've had most of my best friends my whole life have suffered from eating disorders um, and then also I've just seen the ways in which women's bodies just prevent them from getting out there and playing sports or yeah being more assertive standing up for themselves and so I think I was actually reading an article way back when like in September 2017 about the amount of labiaplasties surgeries that young girls were undergoing under eight, under the age of 18 and it was just like really rising and I think that sort of <laughs> some reason that particular article on that particular day I was like I've had enough of this um this is just ridiculous where are they getting this messaging from and so I sort of went on a rampage of like what am I going to do about this <laughs> um yeah and I went I went looking <laughs> to find what was out there for them yeah so it was a, it was a trigger for you just to yeah yeah get amongst it yeah a bit of a, a bit of a trigger I was like oh my god this is ridiculous so I went looking around um I guess my first thought I went to a book um, just because of the age group that I was thinking of, it was the most accessible format for mm. the girls. So I was looking in um, a bookstore and I was looking for a book that showed diverse bodies or just unpacked what it was to have different body shapes, but then not to see them in the media. Um, so I thought representation was really important to me. I wanted to see the actual, see the different bodies and I couldn't really find anything. And so I guess that's the, how I formed my idea yeah. for learning to love your body. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Let's come back to some of the details on that. But before we do, Jack, where, where's, where do you fit in? You've got a what on the surface um, sounds something similar, but has no doubt got some nuanced differences or some important differences as well. Yeah. So um, 
my research is in sociology and um, together with Cameron Smee and Jeffrey Bashara, two of uh, my colleagues at VU, Victoria University, um, we wanted and we did, um, we wrote an uh, article on body image pressures in AFL. Um, so that was published in the conversation a few weeks ago and we wanted to discuss how aspiring and current athletes uh, broadly may experience body image pressures um, and with doing this we wanted to uh, situate this issue within a broader social and cultural context mm. um, of sport and and really discuss how it links with broader society as a whole um, because of some uh, findings we came uh, that demonstrated the significance and the prevalence of this issue within Australian youth. So um, there's definitely some uh, similarities and parallels with Jess's book. Yeah, yeah, clearly. Capri, I'm just wondering, just um, from a GP point of view, yep. what are you seeing in the clinic in relation to either of these? Well, yeah, we see a lot of it. Um, not just the increase in prevalence, but also the thing, I guess, that um, alarms me the most is the age at which... Um, yeah. people are presenting with these negative body image issues. Um, you know, girls as young as eight who say, mummy, why well, don't I have a flat tummy? Mm. Um, you know, girls who... And guys, but obviously it is more prevalent in young girls and I, yeah. I don't know if Jess has got something to add to why that is the case um, even at, in a, at a very young age. But um, girls who are starting to modify their diets... Um, and modify the clothes they wear at such a young age and it's yeah. really quite alarming. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, it's really young. Mm. I think like um, the statistic I've got here, it was like over nearly 60% of young girls aged 6 to 8 wanted to be thinner than the size that they're at currently. Mm. At, at, at six to eight. Six yeah. to eight, yeah. So, like, a lot of these um, preventative programs that are run and a lot of, um, I guess, uh, resources that were available to young girls were targeted at teenagers. But mm. we've got six to eight-year-olds presenting with these issues. Mm. Wow. And as far as um, Jack's issue, I mean, you see a lot of young uh, athletes, and again, now it's mainly guys. It's interesting how there seems to be a, a, a bit of a, a divide here, certainly in general practice, who do focus on the bodybuilding lean you know ripped yeah. all that all that dialogue and it's all and the supplements and you know it just seems to be a real push now for guys to look a certain way as well yeah. you know it's for completely different reasons yeah, yeah and i think there's um from what i've read there's a difference in the ideal body portrayed for um men and for women so with the with the women's body being more slender and um tall and um, as far as the ideal is concerned, portrayed by um, the media and um, different institutions with marketing. Um, and then f the masculine ideal seems to be a bit more muscular and um, so a body that um, represents strength and power. Mm. Um, so there, there does seem to be the different ideals in which um, people feel pressure to um, yeah. attain. One of the things I find interesting about um, your work, Jack, is that you're making this distinction um, between what goes hand in hand with athleticism is that you need to be fit and your performance is, um, you know, there's a very clear metric for your performance. You know, you're injury-free and you're winning, mm -hmm. whatever that might mean according to sport. But you actually seem to be making the point that um, those, while still certainly present for um, young elite athletes, um, there's a look that needs to go with it as well as, you know, not just the fitness and performance. Yeah, that's right. So um, 
I think within each sport um, there is a specific ideal body um, within the particular sport culture and, um, you know, when we look at AFL, the players have to be lean but also muscular. But, you know, for someone who is a sumo wrestler, uh, that's not the same <coughs> ideal body. And um, even even for someone who's, you know, say a jockey or yeah. um, there's all these different sports and each sport... Um, has their sport-specific ideal body that they need to attain. And just sorry to interrupt you there, Jack, but just listening to you just then, it, it occurred to me those, um, on a relatively superficial level, those conversations you often have in front of the telly when you're watching the Olympics with a, <laughs> with a bunch of people. And the, the television, the broadcast of the Olympics is usually jumping between events, you know, and somebody will be on the couch because you're always on the couch and you're always eating whatever. I, mean, just, I think swimmers have the best bodies. And then somebody will say, no, I think it's the divers. Or they'll say, no, I think it's the marathon marathon runners or yeah. something like that there's people are disposed to some identification of a particular body look and shape aren't yeah. they yeah and it's i guess it's um a lot to do with the perspective that they come from and their previous experiences um and image they've images that they've formed relationships with um i think how it, um however a good point is that each sport um, even though there's different ideal bodies, each sport treats the body as an object that must be continuously worked on and evaluated in um, in relation to external norms. And um, we look at sport and there's so many extern- external standards and um, that are set and very high uh, external standards. And there's all these uh, ways of monitoring uh, the body. So especially with technology and advances in technology, you know, you've got the scales, you've got um, GPS, You've got uh, gym um, apps for everything. Yeah, metrics that are coming <laughs> back, and it's all, um, I guess, especially for athletes, and that may be a part of why they're more susceptible uh, to body image pressures, um, because there's just this high frequency at which they're being told something about their body. Well, I guess that was something I wanted to bring up with you, Jack. I'm going to be the devil's advocate a little bit again. Um, I mean, your your conversation article is titled. Uh, it's got the word fat in it. So is this really a question of fatness or fitness? I mean AFL players, it's a big business, it's all about winning, you want the best people on the on the paddock playing and being maximum, you know that, that ideal that we want the fittest, the fastest, the strongest and all those parameters that you just described, how they measure fitness, it's not about the look is it? I think it's about the fitness that that they're aiming for, rightly or wrongly, rather than the way the player looks. Because if it's really, if it was a beauty contest, you think about some of those hairdos and some of those <laughs> beards they've got. Clearly, it's not about the look of the player. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really good point. I think sports nowadays, because of this emphasis on performance, are focused on maximising the biological productivity and efficiency. Um, However, I do think that some of these practices will lead um, to people seeing themselves in certain ways. So you look at uh, within the article we had, um, we had um, we referenced how Carl- Carlton Football Club and AFL Club had a fat club for those over twelve percent um, body fat. And what we can see here is that all right, the athletes, professional athletes themselves, have to be have to perform well. It's part of their job. Um, however, even though we've had exceptions, so when Dane Swan was criticised for his body, he won the Brownlow that year. Um, but I do think that uh, these ideas and messages are trickling down to community sport 
and it shapes even though it's focused on performance it shapes the way people understand their bodies and um, how they see themselves yeah. I think it also acts as a barrier as well for younger kids um, playing sport um, I've got a statistic here um, it is about girls but by age 14 um, over half of girls are dropping out of sports or actually no sorry at twice the rate of boys are dropping mm. out of sports so like wow. post puberty mm. so we're talking about you know um, exercise and, and healthy eating and engaging in these activities but when they're yeah seeing this as a barrier that's a, that's a big problem and just to jump in there, I think that is part of the problem with elite sport or high-performance sport is that there's this focus on performance and teams or um, organisations that have elite athletes tend to think of health as um, making sure the athlete is available for games or competition mm. and that they're going to be productive and that they've got a body that will be efficient um, based yeah. on all this scientific discourse when, according to the World Health Organisation, health also includes ecological dimensions where you know we can um, look at health from a perspective of how people relate to the world how people relate to the community um, how they understand themselves the beliefs and perceptions they have about themselves so this narrow view of health within high performance sport Mm -hmm. which purely serves to um, you know emphasize performance is not really thinking about health in holistic terms and I think that's what we were trying to point out as well within the article. Jess, so we've been hearing about how that context of professional sport and, you know, emerging elite sportsmen, young young elite sportsmen, um, the pressures are coming from the club, I I guess, essentially, and teammates and so on and so forth. Where are the pressures for young girls? Um, Where aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Nicely said. (laughs) I think that there is an enormous amount of pressure placed on young girls and but the way their bodies look is a big one, but I think we could go on forever, but also I'll focus on their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that we've always had a lot of pressure from advertising, from mainstream media. We now have social media, which is also another form of advertising. Influencers are now um, they're embodying like a sort of a casual approach when really it's still refined and edited in the same way, so it's actually more insidious. Yeah. Um, and so that is following young girls home. They've always got access to that. I think the average uh, teenager these days is on social media for at least three hours a day, so that's shaping the way they see bodies, their own bodies and other people's bodies. Teddy yeah. Roosevelt had a, uh, a quote that I reminded of and it was, um, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. Referring to this idea of, of, you know, if you're constantly comparing how you are and where you sit, I think he had in mind, you know, economic yeah. affluence. Mm. But, you know, thinking about our bodies um, and thinking about that in relation to social media, this mm. constant comparison mm. because social constant. media feeds are clearly just curated to present the best of ourselves. Yeah, it's a highlight reel. It's a highlight reel. It's why Doolittle only posts when he's in Bali, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Um, um, But so so the girls are are seeing that. And and, and what what about the families? What are we suggesting the role of the family is in this? Um, I think to teach critical thinking because we can't uh, control social media consumption sometimes with young people but we can teach them to what they're seeing is curated it is a highlight reel it isn't real life no one's showing when they felt really depressed that day or when they had a cry on social media but it happens so they can often forget that other people are going through the same struggles they are i also think that there are a lot of positive um, accounts on social media that young people don't necessarily come across so finding those and then providing access to young people be really helpful and jess do you think um that the schools should play a role in this so we spoke about 
uh, you just touched on media literacy mm. um, and being able to um, critically think about images yeah. um, that you're being shown. I don't know about you, but I never experienced that in school and there wasn't any subjects on um, how to interpret mm. the information that's mm. provided by the media yeah. and the images. So yeah. um, do you think that's an important role that schools may play? Absolutely. I'm constantly shocked and appalled that this is not a part of the curriculum. Um, I actually work for the Butterfly Foundation and so we go into schools and we provide this information. It's an amazing program and it's really important information, but not enough schools are taking us up on it. It's not compulsory. It's often a thing that more privileged schools have access to because of money and time in the curriculum. Mm. You know, you've got to have a teacher observing, things like that. So, yeah, this information is not getting to every girl. And when I go in and do those talks, this is often the first time they've gotten to talk about an issue that affects them every day, every hour of every day, really. Well, good on you for getting out there, Jess, because it's obviously a message that needs to be um, heard. Uh, You're promoting... You've got a book... Um, and we're just talking about this impact of social media. Where do you see that fits given that the influence, uh, the negative influences are coming from social media? Well, not all of them, obviously, whereas you've got a hard copy book that obviously schools would be a great place for that book to be, to spread the word. But how do you think it's going to work? Who who are your target audience? So my target audience is girls aged about eight and over. So I am looking to get them before they have access to social media. (laughs) Uh Mm, (laughs) I think prevention is key. Five. <laughs> well, I, I I think five. Why not? Like I've written it in really simple language, yes. and the illustrations are one of the only representations they're going to see of their bodies in diverse ways. Mm. So, and there are some other really great children's books out there that are targeted even younger than mine, which one one called My Amazing Body. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want to get them before. I want to provide them with the tools that they deserve to have, such as like you know critical thinking, but also like access to comp- concepts like self love. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back. You're on Radiotherapy with Capri, our guests Jess and Jack and me, panel beater. Jack, um, you were just uh, off air a moment ago uh, talking a little bit about how personal responsibility fits into this. Where were you taking us with that? Uh, so I think um, within today's culture, um, within broader society, but also um, within sport or in particular within sport, um, we understand that individuals' body images uh, and the issues they have can be understood within this social and cultural context. And um, part of the culture that we have today is this individualization of responsibility, um, this commitment to meritocracy where it's all put up to the individual and the idea that um, you can be anything you want. Um, and with this, it kind of neglects some of the factors outside of the individual's control that may influence the body shape or the size of their body. Um, You know, you look at economic factors, so um, maybe some families who can't afford to eat healthy or they they can't afford to put their um, children um, or themselves through organised sport, um, especially as um, the costs of sport increase and um, they may have to work more, Oh, yeah, things like genetics and medical conditions um, for particular people may affect their body shape and size. But because of this individualisation of responsibility, um, some bodies, um, such as those that are overweight or fat, uh, seem to be stigmatised and seem to be viewed as lazy or, um, yeah, lazy or um, immoral even. So there's this moralisation or moralising effect Um, that produces a certain hierarchy because those that do attain the ideal um, that is portrayed by the media, um, 
are kind of viewed that they've done it, you know, all of them, they've done it themselves and that they've put a lot of work and it's socially desirable. And so what this does is it kind of reinforces a social order in which those that attain the ideal body are up the top and those um, who deviate from that ideal are down the bottom. And I feel sorry for kids at school in particular because um, a lot of the school children would collude and through their conversations at school would kind of reproduce this discourse and this understanding of the body and it would lead to this social order at school and I know in my experiences the you know the people with the the um, fit bodies were all, always more socially desirable at school so they were the you know the jocks or um, mm, particular yeah, groups yeah. of people were viewed as socially desirable to hang out with and then you know you have those on the other side in contrast who are you know a bit overweight or have a different body shape and size outside outside the norm and all of a sudden they're stigmatized it's their fault and no one wants to hang out with them and there's this moralizing effect um i think think sorry i think we have to balance that a little bit too because the ones who are genetically programmed to be really good at something or they've worked hard for it or whatever we don't want to sideline them either like you know there are some kids or adults who also need to be valued for what they're good at and I think you know I've come through a culture where my kids are at school everyone got an award for being the best at doing nothing sometimes you know because that promotes and I think the the kids who are really good at it then kind of slip by the wayside as well so I hear what you're saying but I also feel like we can't not let the kids who are actually good at it for whatever reason working hard that and as long as it's something that is you know that is valued perhaps not necessarily because you've got beautiful long blonde hair but yeah do you mean like sport or something like good at sport yeah good at sport good at you know their academia whatever it is I think it's okay to promote them as well because I think there is this issue where some of those kids get sidelined because everyone is supposedly great at at reading now because they all get an award for it (laughs) yeah that that's a really good point and I think it it um, reinforces that we need a balanced approach. So I think it's just a little bit out of balance at the moment, especially within children. So as adults, we can kind of rationalise and reason and say, you know, it's a kind of, it's a balance. And, but with kids, it's, it's very much off balance. Um, We, yeah, they, they just don't have the same understanding. So Mm. I think anything that raises the awareness within these children, that there may be factors outside of the, um, of the, their peers control um, will be really good because this individualization and this um, moralizing effect, when people internalize this, it's when exercise and dietary habits are classified as good or bad, healthy and unhealthy. And that's when um, people internalise it and experience these feelings of shame or guilt and yeah, exclusion. That's, yeah, that's a really good point, Jack. I had um, a friend come in and tell me the day after I told him about my book that um, his four-year-old daughter had been called fat by another four-year-old and she'd use that as an insult. And so it is explicitly obvious amongst young people when they're using this language, mm-hmm. the immoral nature of fatness. Um, but it, it, it leaks into adulthood too. It's not just children. Like fat people are... It's almost like an acceptable way to ostracise people and discriminate against them. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I've tried to do in my book is show these bodies in a celebratory, empowering way mm-hmm. so that they can at least find some reassurance uh, and validation 
through the illustrations because, mm. yeah, they, they, they've got it really hard. Well, yeah, just on that point, Jess, uh, in the information that you helped us out with in background, you were talking about language like um, self-love and empowerment mm. and so on. What does it mean in your context? In my context, so self-love would be, I think, self-acceptance and also an unconditional compassion showed towards your own body. Right. Um, empowering is giving them the tools to tackle um all the obstacles that they come up against because of their body. So like that critical eye as a tool, I use self-care as a tool. So that's really big throughout the book is practical ways to care for oneself, to um, promote resilience and emotional intelligence, uh, things like that. Yeah. The other thing I really love about your message, Jess, is the viewing the body in terms of functionality so Mm. that, you know, girls, you know, come to understand that their body is, is their friend and what they do with it in what they can do with it and not to limit themselves based on what, you know, these society, you know, stereotypes. And, you know, that's certainly where I come at it when I see children with emerging eating disorders. I try and explain to them, you know, if if they don't look after their bodies, what will that mean in, a, in health terms? Mm-hmm. But I think your message is a bit broader. It's what it means in Sarah's sport or getting out there and, act, you know, do, getting up on stage yeah, and all those things that they have to do at school. And yeah, all the things that make them them and are forming yeah. their individual identities they should have access to. And I think, yeah, body functionality is a big part of my book. It is um, focusing on what the things are the things that the body can do, um, not being frustrated by the things that it can't do, mm. like loving it just for what it can do for you uh, and seeing it less as an object and more as an instrument, um, an incredible instrument and totally. being grateful for it. So mindfulness and gratefulness are also a big part of the book. Really great yeah. message, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I'm, I'm raising the funds for it currently on Kickstarter actually. It's got three days left to go and we've all already... We'll nearly get $20,000 raised. Um, so that's like through pre-buying a copy of the book or the self-care poster, which can be like printed off and stuck up in a room. And so three days to go and $4,000 to go. So really close. And that was just to, for me to cover the costs I've outlaid to, for the creation of the book. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're with Radiotherapy. It's Panel Beater here with um, Capri and in the uh, in the studio with us are our guests, um, uh, Jack Haynes and... Um Yes, I, I, I mucked it up at the start of the show. I said, Hines, it's Jack Haynes and Jess Sanders with us. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so um, to tie a little bow on this conversation, Jack, where's your research at and um, where are you going with it? So I'm looking at um, identity negotiation in uh, elite uh, junior athletes. So trying to use sociology to understand um, health and how the organisation of sport and the ideas on the body and um, the discourse around the body um, can influence people's health and and their um, understanding. And um, currently I'm doing my PhD at Victoria University and I'm just about to begin collecting some data and um, with the elite junior sporting team um, and, yeah, really looking forward to, to that process and continuing to engage with um, the media. Great. Thanks, Jack. And we'll put a link up on our Radiotherapy Facebook page of the Conversation article that you did. And, um, Jess, where can people find info about your Kickstarter? Oh, well, if you go to Kickstarter, this is the website right now, it's actually featured on the publishing page. But also if you go to my website for the social enterprise I founded that is going to publish this book. Um, it is www.re-shape.com.au and there's a link on the front page there that you can also take you directly to the Kickstarter. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.